right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Sean Steele Law Firm podcast. I am Alexander Eisner. I am joined by the always helpful uh, and new to the podcast, Dr. Jacqueline Nolan. Dr. Nolan is a licensed clinical uh, psychologist, which means she provides forensic evaluations, consultations, expert witness testimony services for attorneys, courts, and employers. She helps attorneys better understand their clients' psychological functioning to assist with legal decision-making process. Dr. Nolan, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, So I want to jump right in and talk about um, what it is that you do as it relates to personal injury cases. Um, And it's sort of an interesting dynamic because a lot of times, uh, specifically when we're talking to this audience, we're talking to a group of chiropractors here um, who are all interested in PI, we're talking about treatment. And today, very specifically, we are not talking about treatment. We're talking about diagnosis. Um, And so maybe you can maybe step back, talk a little bit about educational background, but then I'm, I'm very interested to know sort of how your specialty fits into the greater PI landscape. Sure. So a little bit about my educational history. I have my doctorate in clinical psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I have worked primarily in the field in a clinical setting. I've done a lot of work in the treatment of addiction, the treatment of depression, anxiety, PTSD, And then my forensic work has been primarily within evaluation. So your question about the the PI landscape in particular, really my role is I come in when someone has experienced a car accident or another injury, let's say, and I'm coming to assess what's happening for them and their emotional well-being. So I will assess for things like PTSD, depression, anxiety, Oftentimes, you know, there's in the hierarchy of needs, physical needs go first, clearly, and there's a bit of that triage model. But oftentimes, in my opinion, sometimes the emotional side gets overlooked or the distress that a physical injury causes can be overlooked. And that's where I come in to really assess what's happening for someone. Is there a diagnosis? If there is, what is it? And what what do we do with that? What's the treatment for them? Okay, so... So you're doing all forensic work now, or are you doing any clinical work now? I do mostly forensic work. I also do some clinical work where I'm still seeing clients and treating things such as PTSD, addiction, depression, anxiety. I also do some adjunct teaching. So I'll be teaching a substance abuse class coming up in a week. To what, uh, just out of curiosity, to what body of students are we teaching this? To doctoral students. So at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in downtown LA, I will be training future doctors. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you taught before? I have. I was going to say, good luck with that. This is a, uh, I'm in my second year teaching uh, Cal- California Civil Procedure at Loyola Law School. I think we talked about this when we spoke last, but it's, uh, it's been a wild ride of, uh, of teaching. <laughs> yes. um, back on subject. So um, so, okay. So, so we're talking about uh, diagnosis. I imagine we're talking about uh, testing. Talk me through what that entails, practically speaking. I mean, what is the experience like for a patient who has been sent to someone like you or you in particular? Um, what are they going to go through when they, when they meet with you? 
So typically the starting point is a pretty lengthy clinical interview. Sometimes it can take a couple of hours, you know, just really getting into every kind of nuts and bolts aspect of someone's life. You know, the way that I explain it to clients is this may not feel relevant to what's happening or specifically related to it, but it's really important for me to understand what life was like before an injury to then understand how an injury has been impactful. So, you know, really getting into someone's medical history, social history, mental health history, educational history, you know, any number of things. So that's, you know, number one. And then the second part is some battery of objective measures usually looking at things such as overall emotional and personality functioning. It can look at specific diagnoses like anxiety or PTSD, depression. But at that point, I'm, you know, with someone while they're taking a number of different questionnaires to then add objective data in addition to the self-report data I get from the clinical interview. So, so let's take that one step further. What, what, so they're filling out like a long exam, right? Uh, you know, I imagine some of the questions to be things like, do you ever consider self-harm? If so, how often? Those sorts of things. Among a million other questions I'm sure they get asked. What are you adding to their self-reporting? In terms of from those results? Well, you said so. I assume so. You said you're adding, you know, sort of objective data on top of their subjective self-reporting. What What did you mean by that? Yes. So the questionnaires are normed and validated, so that yes, they, you know, it's still the client that's filling out the questionnaires themselves. So there is an element of self-report, but it is through the lens of these objective measures. So you know, if someone says, for example, in your, you know, your example of self-harm, if someone says, you know, I think of self-harm once a month, these types of measures would then be able to compare them to others in their age or in gender or race or any number of demographic variables to know, well, is that a lot more than most people? Is that little? You know, that's where these measures can come in to help to understand what this means in comparison to most people. So, okay. So what, what kind of work then do you have to do? I mean, do you have to take the raw data that the client provides you and normalize it or input it into software or just interpret it using your sort of clinical judgment? Is there any clinical judgment that goes into, not clinical judgment, but professional judgment that goes into reading the results? Or is it really just like they input the, you know, they, they self-report, they fill out bubbles answer, and then it gets sort of fed through a statistical analysis software and it spits out the other end of value. They're an 86 and then you compare 86 on the table says that they're at high risk of suicide or at low risk of suicide or whatever. I mean, maybe nuts and bolts this for me. Sure. So the answer is that, you know, each measure will give some degree of those types of numbers that you just gave as an example of, you know, this is this person's in the 65th percentile or the, you know, they are 88% higher in this thing. And so that's kind of where the the measures come in, but that's also where it's up to me and my expertise and also integrating the clinical interview to understand each person's own experience. So for example, if someone has had a significantly traumatic childhood, as an example, you know, perhaps their baseline for PTSD symptoms was 
probably somewhere around 70% more than the average person. And then on top of that, they've had a recent trauma or a recent injury that now has thrust that into 90%. So it's up, you know, that's where I come in and that's where my expertise comes in to understand and start to tease apart based on the data, based on my own professional experience, based on all of the, you know, records available to me if possible to then understand what's leading to what we're seeing and also what do we do about it. And which way does something like that cut? I mean, does it cut in in terms of, you know, if they had pre-existing trauma or a history of of trauma in like that you just described that they would be more susceptible to to psychological injury as a result of new acute trauma or does does that cut the other direction in, in that their baseline for trauma is now higher because of all they've been through and so maybe something as slight as a car accident you know a minor car accident which you know maybe for somebody who is more who's who didn't have you know previous trauma that might rise up high, up higher in there you know that might might rise to the level of PTSD let's say for somebody who didn't have previous trauma for the person that does maybe that doesn't even rank on the the list of things that that bother them which, which way does something like that cut I'm going to give you a not so satisfying answer of it depends, but it it really does. I mean, because ultimately the other thing to consider when it comes to traumatic events is it's not just the event itself. It's really how it impacts someone's functioning and the way that someone was functioning pre-injury often then, you know, lends itself to how much or how little something can be of impact. So, you know, for example, if, someone were to get into a car accident and, you know, they had a previous history of trauma. They had like just gotten their life together. This car was like, you know, they had gotten every, and then they have this car accident. You know, the injury itself is the physical injury, but there's obviously a much greater loss to someone where your car is, you know, 80% of your net worth at that specific moment, as opposed to someone where, you know, I lost a car. Okay, I'll go get a new one. You know, right. Just as a financial example, and there are so many layers to that in terms of how someone may prioritize or make meaning of certain things, and that's where the clinical interview is really critical in understanding what those things are for each person and how the impact is for that person. Right. And you brought up a really interesting point, and something I've sort of wondered about myself, which is you 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 suffer from a severe lack of baseline information. And so by way of analogy, when we're looking at an MRI of somebody's spine, there are indicators, objective indicators of things that are degenerative, pre-existing injuries that you can say, yes, I see this injury here and we don't have a prior study to compare to, but this injury is indicative of degenerative pre-existing condition, or this looks like an acute brand new injury that stems from trauma. Um, is there such a thing in psychological terms? I mean, if, if somebody is depressed, let's say, how how could you know, or or their 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 scores show them to be depressed, how can you have any clue if you had done that study the day before this accident, if it wouldn't have showed something very similar, or if this is as a result of an acute trauma? This is where the functioning piece really comes into play because this is where I'm considering, you know, if someone was very depressed, but was still able to hold down a job and, you know, start a family. And it's not to suggest that they weren't depressed or that the depression wasn't significant, 
But that's a very different picture than someone who was really depressed and has been hospitalized a few times for suicidal ideation or attempts or has had periods of homelessness because they've been unable to like hold a job because their depression is so severe. And that's where, you know, records can be helpful in terms of that. But that's also where considering, you know, what did this person's life look like before and what were the ways where perhaps it wasn't going so well even to begin with? And then maybe that, you know, became exponential after some type of injury. So so a lack of baseline becomes a little less important when we're talking about psychological symptomology because you're able to sort of use context clues. I mean, I'm, I'm using obviously the non technical terminology here, but that use context clues to determine, look, if this was a, a somebody who was really battling depression beforehand, well, obviously I don't need a baseline. I know what that would have looked like versus, well, this person's life was chugging along just fine. And they're telling me that they weren't depressed before. And that checks out with the fact that they had a family and a job and, and a life and friends. And now they're scoring, you know, some level of depression on this exam. And the only thing that appears to have been different between before and now is this major car accident. You can start to piece together what the likely causation is there. Am I, am I getting close? Certainly. And that's also where, you know, records certainly can be helpful. If someone has had any degree of mental health treatment prior to, then often there's, you know, some degree of baseline. It's not necessarily like a, you can compare six versus seven. It doesn't get that finite or that specific, but you can start to know, okay, what was it this person may have been struggling with before, or even if they didn't have treatment of any type before, you know, sometimes even in primary care notes, I'll find a note of, you know, a recent bout of insomnia related to job stress. You know, sometimes it's, it's that type of like little one-off statement that's made even in a primary care setting that can be indicative of, oh, you know, it seemed like things were here before in this one area, let's say sleep. Now this person is, you know, really not sleeping, really struggling. And this is a difference from there, or, you know, that wasn't present there. And then all of a sudden after the injury, they're going to their primary care talking about how they can't sleep at all. And we see now through the records that that was never an issue before. And now, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously using what I think amounts to the most difficult case, which is sort of psychological, um, emotional injury, mm-hmm. but there's probably some easier. So I've heard rumor and you can confirm or deny here that, that, that for, for neurologic symptoms like memory loss or cognitive function, right? People who are high functioning, you know, with real technical jobs that all of a sudden can't do what they were doing before. I hear it from my clients all the time. They'll say things like, I, I, something's not right. I, I can't think like I used to be able to think. And and those sorts of symptoms, A, must be terrifying, uh, and B, don't seem to show up that well on testing outside of your sort of brand of, of long-form psychological testing. Um, how is it possible to filter for that sort of thing? Like I've heard from people who do psychological testing that that that's built into the test, that there, there are things that are affected by hitting your head real hard. And there are things that really aren't. And we can sort of filter for that. And we, we don't, without a baseline, I can run a, a, a test and go, this person is suffering from some degree of mental, I don't know what you, what the clinic, the technical turn is, but, but de- degradation of their mon- mental faculties or function that only really makes sense as a result of a, of a, of a, an acute injury, even without a baseline. 
Yes. And that's, again, that's where that functioning piece comes in because it's, that's where everything is relative because, you know, everything is normalized over kind of a normal bell curve. But if you had someone who was likely, you know, a couple of standard deviations above everyone to start with, it may seem like, well, okay, if we do the testing and they're at the 75th percentile, like they're still well above everyone, but you know, their functioning suggested that likely, you know, they cruise through school, they, you know, have this great education, this really kind of high powered or very task oriented job that they've really been killing it at, that yes, that's a significant then impact to go from maybe a 90th percentile to a 75th percentile on something, even if you're still quote unquote ahead of everyone. Right. And that's where, you know, the testing can really demonstrate and that's where the functioning piece and knowing the functioning of someone pre and post injury is really important to be able to put that in context. Now, talk to me a little bit about diagnosis. What, what kinds of things are you able to diagnose with these with this these battery of tests? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of tests that can basically diagnose pretty much anything. The things that I really run into most within the PI worlds are PTSD or other forms of trauma related things. Um, also adjustment disorders. So, you know, PTSD, most people have heard of adjustment disorder is like a step down in terms of something has happened that has been hard for someone to adjust to. It's not just like, oh, that's hard to adjust to, but like they're really struggling in some way, but they may not be meeting full criteria for PTSD. Um, major depressive disorder, often it's one of those things where someone has something happen and then they're really going into a place of depression as a result. Anxiety, often I see that with things like accidents or assaults where someone may then be fearful of general things or even specific phobias, panic disorder. Those are the ones that I tend to see the most in, in this realm. Uh, any any of the neurocognitive stuff I was talking about, are you able to diagnose or are you diagnosing people who have memory problems or, or cognitive function problems or, you know, inability to focus problems? I mean, the, the types of neurologic symptoms that that actually could be indicative of something like a like a traumatic brain injury. Certainly. That's something where I'll usually be referring to, you know, let's get you to go see a neurologist potentially, or let's get you to see, you know, someone in the the medicine world in terms of making sure that we're addressing this from the physical, because it's it's hard at times to suss out what could be just, re- just related to the physical versus what is also then potentially attributed to exacerbated by the emotional, because to your point with, you know, memory, for example, if someone's had a traumatic event happen, at times they dissociate where they don't remember exactly what happened to them at that moment. And that can be an emotional response that could be a response to some type of traumatic brain injury, it's hard to know exactly. And that's where I think the melding of the two fields of psychology and medicine is really important. Yeah. And um, so you're going to be speaking at our at our other uh, at our big conference in November, which I'm very excited about. And we'll tease that uh, sort of in a couple of minutes. But um, one of the, I mean, that the, the main thing we'll be talking about there is traumatic brain injuries. And there's a neurologist who's going to speak at that um, about sort of the objective physical side of things. But what, what where we where we end up with problems in the in the in the PI world and I'm sure you know this is in the mild traumatic brain injury category specifically the subcategorization of ones that don't show up 
on MRIs or, or, or brain MRIs, 3T brain MRIs, those sorts of things. So you've got somebody who has, you know, who has sustained in, in uh, you know, documented head trauma. There's no bleed. There's no nothing that nothing showing up on an objective uh, metric, but they are complaining of very real neurologic. I mean, balance issues, headache, you know, real severe headaches, memory problems, um, you know, emotional uh, wide range, you know, wide flux emotional problems. And I, and a lot of times the only way to put that on paper is through someone like you to do so, uh, you know, a battery of tests to really show, to show this because there's no, sometimes there's no other way to do it and, and to, to validate the, the symptoms that are, you know, very, sometimes, sometimes pretty severe and life altering. Yes, certainly. And that's where, you know, at times I think Unfortunately, people kind of think of, oh, well, you know, if it's emotional, you know, someone's kind of making it up or, you know, they can just kind of figure it out or get over it. But the reality is, is that at times, you know, the emotional response to an injury or to a trauma is very significant and life altering in and of itself, even if the physical piece is discounted, you know, that I've had people who have had significant car accidents who then as a result of that no longer feel able to drive. So they're very much isolated. And then in that isolation, they start to develop, you know, their world gets smaller, and they can then start to have, you know, some cognitive issues or memory decline, because they're now more isolated, and they're not getting kind of the same routine or challenge they used to have. There's so many layers to it. And that's where I think it's important and one of the things I will certainly be saying at the seminar is that it, this is where referring to a psychologist, a an evaluating psychologist to be able to look at this is important because, you know, people can be faint or wobbly from anxiety. People can have cognitive issues, memory decline from depression. And it, that's where, you know, if we're ruling out these clear physical symptoms, this is where the psychological piece I think is really important. And that leads perfectly into this audience of chiropractors, specifically personal injury practice uh, chiropractors. What would you tell them about when it makes sense to refer to someone like you? And obviously, the attorneys are sometimes involved in those sorts of uh, those sorts of things. But but in terms of a chiropractor being the quarterback of of the care, a lot of times in these cases, when when does it make sense to send to somebody like you? And what should they be sort of doing in preparation for that? Should I say always? No. <laughs> um, I would say that certainly, you know, talking to someone at times, you know, they'll, I imagine, be assessing for things like sleep patterns, you know, changes in appetite or weight. Um, but, you know, asking even questions about, you know, how has routine changed for you? Or what are some things that feel different for you? besides maybe some of the physical things we've already talked about, sometimes those can be kind of indicators where, especially I, I find that, you know, unless you've asked the question, sometimes it goes unanswered. And, and so I think that this is where just having some basic questions regarding, you know, changes in behavior, changes in routine, or if I, you know, sometimes I'll ask if I were to ask your spouse or your boss or your best friend, how you're different now than you used to be before this injury, what would they say? And sometimes that can elicit a bit more of, oh, it seems like maybe this person's struggling more than they're letting on, or the ways that they're struggling may be more emotional than maybe I initially thought. Yeah, we, I, I hear that. 
I hear this uh, more often than I than is comfortable. Where I'll, I'll hear from a client that you know I haven't driven. You know, just as an aside, I haven't driven since the accident, and I'll go. That was two years ago. Are what? Like you need to, that's a real that's a problem that's a real big problem if you have been avoiding driving for a, a substantial period of time directly as a result of an auto accident that's a that's a symptom that's a i'm not a doctor but that's a symptom and you need to talk to somebody about that and and that can be the basis for referral to talk therapy and to an mft or a psychologist or a, a psychoanalyst but also to document that uh, symptomology and to confirm that diagnosis with somebody like you, I imagine. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, it's, you know, if someone hasn't driven in two years, then it's, well, are you just not going anywhere now? Or now are you incurring like a financial thing? You're just Ubering everywhere. Or there's so many layers in terms of how that then becomes an additional stressor. And another thing that someone's having to manage in terms of the secondary fallout from some right. of these things. It as starts well. out as a phobia. And then that phobia becomes the, the source of new stress and financial burden, which is also a stress. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it, it compounds um, just like that. We are almost out of time. I, I, I did want to touch on one more thing and maybe you can touch, you know, tease this and we'll talk about it more at the seminar um, because it's it's everybody's favorite thing to talk about as it relates to psych, uh, psychological testing. And that's malingering and symptom exaggeration and those sorts of things. Um, of course, the defense uh, loves to point to those things as possible causes for indicators, psychological indicators. Um, how do you account for that? I mean, how do, how do you account for people who are just either going to lie? I mean, if I, if you, if I, I like to think I'm, you know, decently smart. If I got an exam that there's a, a test that said, you know, that was trying to test me for how depressed I was, I like to think I could manipulate that exam to show that I was very depressed. So how, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you manage for, for that, uh, for that sort of, con that eventuality? Sure. Uh, many of the measures that are used will have, things built into it to be able to assess for that. So looking at things like consistent responding, where if you said this once, you should probably say it twice, you know, or um, where most people who have taken this would not respond yes to this. So if you're responding yes to this, that may be an indicator that you're, you know, trying to malinger. There are specific measures just for malingering that exist. So sometimes those are part of a battery. It also, again, is just, it's a comparison of what I know to be true from my expertise versus what's being reported. So if someone's saying to me, you know, is endorsing on a questionnaire, I have depression in the hundredth percentile. It is top, top, top more than anyone. But, you know, I drove here. I look pretty good. I'm going to go pick up my kids from school after this. I'm heading on vacation in a week there's a mismatch there. So that's where it's also my job to interpret these things and really be looking at, does this clearly make sense? Or is there an indication here that perhaps someone is overstating or malingering? Sure. Sure. And I appreciate that. And then they, I mean, I, I, I've talked to lots of people. I'm sure you've spoken to more of them. Um, I like that. I mean, I I generally know pretty quickly when I'm talking, particularly to new clients or prospective clients, that something's not adding up quite right. Like you said, if you're, oh, you know, you're going on vacation, you got that. I mean, and there's obviously instances where you can look like you have your life together and really not. But 
I've definitely felt those moments of this, something's not right here. Um, I'm sure with the level of experience you have, there would be ways of drilling down on that gut feeling um, and sort of proving it or not proving it. Um, so I'm, I'm sure those those things exist. Doc, I want to thank you for being here. I do want to tease the seminar we sort of talked about. So November 11th, it's at the uh, Westin in Anaheim, right across the street from Disneyland. So bring your family in and have them enjoy a day at Disneyland while you are in an air-conditioned hotel room learning about this. Um, uh, tickets will go on sale very, very soon on our website, uh, seansteel.com. Uh, the events page at the top, you'll be able to uh, get early bird pricing here, I think, in the next week or two. I think we're gonna the tickets will go on sale. Um, we expect that they will sell out. So if you're thinking of going... Um, Staff tickets are cheaper. If you want to send your staff, we highly recommend that. Um, but Dr. Nolan will be there discussing um, all of the, many of the things we talked about today, specifically in a TBI context, but she'll talk about all the things that she does. We've got an adjuster, an actual real live in-person uh, working adjuster for a major insurance company. We call her the anonymous adjuster because we don't say her name or who she works for, but she will be there. Uh, this will be her second year discussing what she does and how chiropractors can better get paid in the PI world. Um, a neurologist will be there, a neurosurgeon will be there, Sam Collins will be there uh, doing uh, all the great things that he does. And uh, Sean and I obviously will be speaking as well. So th this is uh, this will be a great uh, thing to go to. Um, the podcast that you are presently listening to is available on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcast, as well as the video from this we will make available on YouTube. Dr. Nolan, thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to seeing you in November. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.